This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. Wow, holy bunches of worship. So, what exactly is worship? Today, as we kind of, we finished a series, and uh, we're about to start a series next week going into Easter. But we probably should pause just a little bit and talk about what it is that we do here. The truth is, many folks will talk about worship. Oh, are you, we enjoyed worship, or, or did you, do you worship, or did you go to a church? We, we have, the word kicks around, and yet often we really have a pretty fuzzy idea what worship really should be. Uh, ben and I recently, along with Andrew, got a chance to go to a worship conference, and we were encouraged, and we were challenged. And while we were there, we said, we should make sure that we, we, we take a Sunday and share some of this with the rest of our folks. And uh, so here we are. So the goal this morning, my goal, is to deepen your understanding of what God intends for our worship to be. To help us assign a higher priority to worship. And perhaps most importantly, to fan into a flame a more passionate relationship to God. That's what worship really is. As we jump in, I'm going to invite you to just bow your heads, have a word of prayer with me. Father, we acknowledge that you are worthy. At least we we say those words, the concept is in our minds. We pause today because we realize that sometimes the the reality of that, however, escapes us. We know you know that as well. And so you have prescribed, you have, you have made available to us opportunities, tools, relationships that help to promote your glory, to help us experience what we call worship. So in these moments, we ask that you would speak to our hearts. For some of us, this is going to be information in our heads, but all of us need to let it somehow get down into our hearts and work its way out in our lives. And that only happens when your spirit is free to apply these things. And so I ask that you would help that to happen in our lives, that your spirit would be free to work in us. May my words be your words, so these, your people, are conformed to your image. And I ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So I want to take a few minutes and talk about what worship is. Some of you may say, well, I I know that. Great. Others of you may go, aha, I I didn't quite catch that. And then we're going to move into how we respond to that. And I'm going to be honest with you. I hope that by the time we're done, some of you are prepared to respond. But you don't know what it's going to be yet, which I love putting you on the hot seat. But anyway, so I hope that you'll be ready. So there's some, there's some reasons why we should talk about this. And the first is simply that um, worship is misunderstood. I, it's easy for any of us to think that worship is the, the, the singing, 
You know, the, the, the songs we sing. Uh, worship is the, the warm-up band for the pastor. <laughs> Good job, by the way. Right? Worship is um, some perfunctory thing we do. or we, we don't have a great understanding of it. What, what does reading Scripture have to do with worship? What does praying have to do with worship? What in the world does a sermon have to do with worship? What is worship? Do I even know by the time I've left if it has happened? So there's a lot of confusion. But more importantly, I guess we have to say there are some pretty significant consequences to not understanding what true worship is. False worship has caused folks a lot of problems. In fact, we'll, we can review those quickly. In the, in the story of Genesis, Cain and Abel were told that, that Cain brought an offering, but it was different from Abel's, and it didn't have God's blessing. His worship was unacceptable to God. We read about the fact that um, Israel as a nation was defeated and went into exile primarily because they refused to worship the one true God and instead were always tempted by other idols. In fact, you remember the story in Exodus, Moses with the children of of Israel, 3,000 died in one day because they wanted to dance around something that was false worship rather than the one true God. In the book of Romans, Paul describes the fall of of humanity, this, this moral failure that we all experience. And he says that the wrath of God in verse 18, Romans 1, 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of the godlessness and the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Verse 25, he says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. False worship is at the core, is at the root of the thing that we call sin. Even Satan himself, we're told, lost a, a place of authority and privilege before God because instead of being willing to worship the one true God, he himself wanted to be worshipped and he rebelled against God. In fact, that's why when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, the temptation was, fall down and worship me and serve me. God is not the only one who's looking for worshippers. Satan is looking for people to worship him and to serve him. It makes us realize that worship, in our culture, it seems like such a periphery thing. From God's perspective, it's probably supposed to be at the very core of our lives. But the third reason we're going to look at this quickly is because worship is important to God. Whether we understand it or not, worship matters to God. You remember the story in John chapter 4. Jesus moving through Samaria, and he stops at a well, and he has a conversation with a Samaritan woman. Samaritans were um, 
hated by the Jews. They were half-breed in terms ethnically. Their, their form of religion had morphed away from what Israel had taught, and, and it was this mixed-up kind of uh, false worship. It was always anonymity between the Samaritans and the Jews. And, and so as Jesus is having a conversation with this woman, drawing out from her what she understands about God, what she understands about what living water would be, they get to this place in the conversation in verse 23 of John 4. Jesus said this, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. We should pause there. Their conversation had been about worship. The woman said, well, you guys worship over there. We worship over here. Boy, haven't we had those conversations? Eh, you know, you guys do it this way. You do it that way. Totally get it. Whatever. That's how she's trying to paint it. And Jesus is trying to correct, push back a little bit. He says, well, you know, here, there, you're, you're kind of acting like, hey, everybody has their own opinion. Jesus says, hang on, a time is coming when God... The Father wants true worshipers who will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. What does it mean when Jesus, the Son of God, tells us what the Heavenly Father is seeking? I'm thinking it's pretty important. We know that the Father seeks those who are far from Him. He seeks the lost. He has a passion for the lost. And now we learn from Jesus that the Father seeks worshipers. God is spirit, he says, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, can we ask a question? Um, the Father seeks worshipers. Why? I mean, it sounds, sounds a little egotistical to us, right? Worshipers. Well, I mean, I mean now, if... If we're honest, we say, well, I mean, he's God, so he can do whatever he wants. That's not exactly, though, a rationale for seeking worshipers. Is it right? There's nothing you can do about it if he's God. If, he's, if he says he wants people to stand on their heads, we will be on our heads. The question is, does it make any sense to us? Everything doesn't have to make sense. But since we're made in God's image, often the things he says will make sense. Why does God, why does the Father seek worshipers? Actually, the answer is probably right in front of us. For instance, when a magnificent painting is painted, where does it go? It's hung in a gallery somewhere. The real nice ones, the real important ones are put behind glass, sealed away so that people can file by and look and appreciate. When a beautiful song is written, that song is shared, it's recorded, it's passed around because in its playing it brings joy. Others say, man, that is beautiful. The beauty that started in the heart of one is shared somewhere else. The beauty, the talent that one person holds is shared with others. It's automatic to us. Things of beauty, things that bring joy, should be shared. 
as soon as you win the lottery, after you've called me, you're going to, you could, right? What, if you've been waiting for a child and you find out you're pregnant, or if someone's getting married, or whatever the good news, I got the promotion, we settled on the house, whatever it is, the, the test came back negative, all the cancer is gone. Whatever the news is, what do you do with it? You don't go, hmm, well, you share it. And that is actually exactly what the father is seeking. You see, all beauty has its origin in him. All joy has its origin in him. All purpose, all meaning, all security, it's all there. He wants worshipers because he is what we are all looking for. It's not ego. Now we read that Jesus says that uh, the Father wants worshipers to worship in spirit and in truth. If you've been around church, you've kind of heard a little discussion about that, but not everyone here has been to church. And so in the conversation that Jesus is having with this Samaritan woman, they're having a little debate. See, she's acknowledging that the Jews worship one way, but the Samaritans worship another. Jesus makes a comment to her. He says, you guys are worshiping something that you don't understand. You see, Israel had received God's word. They had received instruction from God. This is how I want to be worshipped. This is what I am like, and this is why I should be worshipped. They had received information. Now, does that mean that Samaritans, I mean, hey, they were worshipping. Even without the right information, they wanted to worship. What she is saying is, well, it doesn't matter the content. It just matters that as long as you're worshipping. See, that would be the spirit of the thing, wouldn't it? And she would say, well, and the Jews, well, you guys, all that matters to you is that you do it rightly, according to the law, according to the rules. And isn't that interesting? It's almost exactly the way that we would sort of divide it up. Well, you got to, you know, there's the right way, but, you know, but, I mean, even if it's not the right way, as long as you do it as a spirit and what Jesus says is, hang on, it is not either or. Those who worship do so in spirit. Now, God is a spirit, and he's worshipped spiritually. He's worshipped by our spiritual being. That is also true. And he can't be worshipped apart from the Holy Spirit. That also is true. But I think part of the conversation here is that Jesus is saying, you need both. You have to have this desire to know him. But it also has to be informed. Not either or, but both. He seeks people who worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, when we begin to study the New Testament and we see what it says about worship, everything that we read in the New Testament about worship has its foundation in the Old Testament. And everything that anyone knew about worship in the Old Testament had been kind of gathered and congealed and condensed into the Psalms, this book of lyrics, Hebrew poetry that was written for the express purpose of worship. And so if we are to understand worship, maybe one of the best things we could do is just take a glance at the Psalms. Now I say take a glance because a study of the Psalms can take several semesters in an academic setting. 
you thought I drug out the first book of 1 Corinthians for a while? Yeah. <laughs> a study of the Psalms. We would be here till retirement. Yeah, sooner for some than others. But anyway. And so maybe, maybe just for the sake of this morning, we could just do some, a quick pass. For instance, in the book of Psalms, if there were a couple of words that showed up more often than any others, if there were a few words that are used more frequently than any others, I wonder if those words would be significant. And I think they are. I think paying attention to those might begin to inform our worship. So, the first word or words, there's a kind of a group of words, that, that we see most often in the Psalms when it has to do with worship is this words that have to do with fear. Now, not fear like terror. Fear like awe, reverence, respect, wonder. More than anything else, every time God is worshipped or God appears or he is brought before his people, the words that are used are words that make you go, I don't, I don't know how, you can't hear that if you're just listening to the recording. I just dropped my jaw. What did that for you last? Just today, I was marveling at Colton, you know. And you said, like, babies are beautiful. Wow. I go out into the woods. I'm not much of a photographer. All my pictures look the same. My whole family, they're like, yeah, trees. Yeah, more trees. Yeah. It's, it's terrible. But when I'm there, I just, huh, huh, what? What did that for you last? God says that is the response of anyone who worships. It's this response of awe and wonder and fear. It's, it's a response that acknowledges a very high view of God. There's another group of words. They're words that have to do with this idea of bowing down. Bowing down, prostrate, prostrate. Not prostate, prostrate. Um, uh, you know, bowing, it's a change in posture. Now, it's funny, this is not something we do in our culture to anyone. In fact, right away, I put a little asterisk and a star in my, my Bible. I thought, I got to be careful because we don't bow to anything. What a shame if that tendency among us rubs off onto our response to worship. What's interesting to me is that posture mattered to God. Now, the Greek word that's used, the Greek translation of some of the Hebrew words, proskuneo, is this idea of, 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 of an outward posture that reveals an inward attitude. It's kind of like that high view of God creates a realistic view of us. I don't know if you've been around somebody that intimidated you. Somebody that was way out of your league. Happens to me a lot. 
and I know what I do. I was thinking, what, what, have I ever, yeah, I felt that way. What do I do? And, and for this, it shows up like this in me. I just kind of go, just kind of, I just want to back up. I just want to be front and center, like, wow. Like, I don't, I don't even know what you guys are talking about. You just, whew. So. God actually uses this, this group of words that talk about a change in posture because it reveals something on the inside. It's an act of reverence that shows through our bodies. Now, are you already seeing why we as Americans have problems with worship? <laughs> we don't bow down to anybody. And we have been trained that what matters is the idea. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm bowing in my head, you know, in my heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're not alone in this. I remember where I was standing the first time I raised a hand in worship. You see, I was raised where that didn't happen. Now, I knew in my head it was okay. I'd seen other people raise their hands in worship, and I thought, that's cool. I couldn't. I was so preoccupied thinking I was drawing attention to myself. My wife and I were at a youth conference. We were youth pastors back then, and the band was just, just nailing it, and I was just so uplifted. And this is what I was doing. My wife finally says, you're going to rip your pants. <laughs> and I had this battle in me. I thought, OK, I did. What was that? And I couldn't figure out, if I feel so uncomfortable doing it, why do I feel, still feel compelled to do it? I am not one who gives in to peer pressure. Everybody around me can be whatever. I'm like, okay, looks weird. Nope. I mean, I don't feel it. Something in me wanted me to respond, and I didn't know how, and I felt awkward. I couldn't figure it out. Why do I want to lift up my hands? By the way, we're going to talk about that in just a minute. And we have to be so careful. We talk about this all the time as we plan worship, because it's not about manipulating certain outward behaviors. I mean, we love you even though you can't clap. <laughs> You can't, you just, okay, we, we love you anyway, totally got that. And, and yet we have to admit that when, when we're worshiping, if you respond in a way that those, anybody who's helping to lead worship, when, when, they, when they know you're in it, when they know that you're sharing, man, what a difference it makes. And you, you've probably noticed it too. If the person next to you is just really, just, you just kind of go, that's kind of neat, if they, as long as they stop hitting me in the head. You know, like, whatever. But <laughs> caught a fish this big, caught a fish this big, carrying the TV, you know, whatever. I mean, there's all, there's, well, there, we should have a training class, yeah. Um, but we're not pushing for something that's manipulated on the outside. It's all about something that starts on the inside. What I'm telling you about my first experience, raising my hands, was that I did it against my will. Something in me wanted to express more than just my voice could do. I have since learned the power of posture. When I know that the place for me to start in prayer is a place of confession, I can't do anything except this. 
I cover my face. I know that the Father loves me. I'm just aware of my sin. And yes, when I am aware that he forgives me and loves me just the way I am, something happens and I want to do something. In fact, part of what we're looking to do as we talk about worship is figure out how can we help each other do whatever it is that helps us express what's cooking on the inside. Now, if you're sitting here now thinking, uh, whatever, I don't get it, then you won't get it. It's okay. The Spirit of God touches lives, and then you just can't get it out, and you're looking for help. And when, when people come and lead us, and they pick a song that we know, and we don't even have to look, and we go, oh, good, and then something happens. <laughs> you just let it rip. Our posture can flow with what's happening on the inside. The third word, or th third group of words that I noticed were words that had to do with sacrifice or service. Now, a quick survey. Boy, if you go before the law was given, in the, in the Old Testament, in those early books, people like Cain and Abel, people like, like Noah, people like Abraham, every time they interacted with God, it included a sacrifice, a gift, stuff. Somehow, from the very beginning, there was an association between worship and bringing something of ours. Now, back in those days, I don't think God needed a side of pork or beef any more than he needs your check. But the truth of the matter is, Worship is generally often inadequate unless it includes a sacrifice, a bringing of something. Again, in our culture, it doesn't happen so much. Maybe you go to somebody's house, and when you go to house, you've been invited to, to their home. Maybe you're still one of those few that brings a gift. But even that's been lost in our culture. See, we're about getting stuff, not giving stuff. I mean, we, don't, we give stuff at Christmas, but that's because we're going to get stuff. And actually, that's exactly what this practice of sacrifice did. It put that heads up, just, just turned it on its ear. Worshiping means sacrificing. Well, do you have to bring a chunk so big? It's not big enough. How big, God? What represents what you have done for me? It's that consternation that fills in the, the gaps in our worship. During the law, when the law was given, uh, then all of a sudden we got very specific. Then there were specific gifts that were supposed to be given in a specific way. There were at least five offerings, five different offerings, and they had different purposes. And then God assigned priests, actually people who would kind of work with you and between God and try to help that. Now, we don't like the idea of somebody standing between us and God. But every one of us needs Ben's help or Frank's help when it comes to worship. You don't believe me? Well, I'm going to test you in just a minute. Try doing it by yourself once. They help us. They help pave the way, and we go with them. All these psalms of ascent. There's, there's these paths, and as they're walking, they're all singing the same song. It, it's not the same when you sing the song as you're walking along by yourself. 
something about the way we are trained as Westerners and Americas, Americans, it slowly separates us from the true meaning of worship. And then we wonder why we're so tempted to look for holy bunches of oats. So worship during the law, these sacrifices got very specific. There's even festivals, at least seven festivals, all lined up to make sure that there's really specific. So it goes from really do whatever you want, whatever you feels right, to also in this very specific. It's kind of interesting. In heaven, well, in the millennium, actually some of those, the priesthood and those sacrifices get restarted. The difference is now it's looking back like a memorial, not looking forward like the Old Testament sacrifices. And then in heaven, in the eternal state, what we see, no more sacrifices, no priests. In fact, everyone worships in whatever way they want, whenever they want. It's not dictated when, but in eternity, praises are offered continually. And instead of these offerings, it goes back to something we say. This interchange between what we say, what we bring, what we say, what we bring. If it was just what we say, we'd think, well, words are cheap. Well, then bring something. And when you begin to train yourself that when I come to worship, I'm bringing something and it's a sacrifice. And then when we switch to the words, we say, why would my words be any different? They should be a sacrifice of praise. It's so interesting. As we look at, well, can we look at heaven for a minute? You do realize that what we do here isn't like the real thing. You realize that this is more like a rehearsal? But that one day, all the redeemed will be worshiping. That's the big show. Ben and I were talking, and one of the speakers at the conference kind of described it as though we're trying to invite everyone up to the wall. Come on, here you go, come on up. And, and we get up to the wall, and we're peeking through this little hole, and what we see on the other side makes us go, oh, oh wow. In fact, every worship service, there's this process of saying, come on, come on, you want to take another peek? Come on. Would you like to take a peek, by the way? Open your Bibles to Revelation 4. This is the Apostle John. He's been transported in the spirit to this place, to this time, the ending of time, when Jesus finishes this redemptive process. <laughs> there is nothing I'm going to say. This is one of our mantras as a, as a team. Um, the gospel, there's nothing we can do here on a Sunday morning that's going to make the gospel more powerful. The gospel is already as powerful as it will ever be. There is nothing we're going to do here on any Sunday morning that's going to make Jesus more beautiful. He's already as beautiful as anything. We don't make him shine. He shines. We are like the tour guides for each other inviting each other to come and take another look and to be, to be stunned and to be moved, to bow, filled with reverence. Irreverence is the opposite of worship. 
So now John sees, wouldn't you love, put your face up to the peephole and peek into what the real main event will be like. And I'm going to suggest that John couldn't quite find words to describe what he saw. You may, not be, you may not understand what he's saying, but I guarantee if you saw what he saw, you'd be using words that we wouldn't understand them either. And so here, John, after this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. That'd be a good series of messages, an open door. And the voice I heard first I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lampstands were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they, covered, they were covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four creatures had six wings, and it was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This is what John saw. Whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, whenever that happened, the 24 elders fell down. There's that word. Fell down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, O Lord, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Oh, my. Let's let's make some quick observations before we go. This is something that we heard at the conference that I just want to share. We know that there's no more time in heaven. There's a sequence of events, but there's no more time. You do realize... And at the conference, they were talking to all music people, so this mattered to them. You realize that all music, as we know it, is is governed by the law of meter. And all meter is simply a measurement of time. Thank you. What What will music sound like without meter? 
What, how, does, how does one perform? It's almost as though God has reserved a special kind of music just for him. Isn't that powerful? It makes me want to hear it. There's another observation, and that is that our primary occupation in heaven is worship. It's what they do. I don't know how that works because there's no time, and so maybe they, you, you never get tired of a sermon or something. You just, it's just you stay, but it's what we do. Worship in the present age most commonly resembles what will occur in heaven. We talked about under, before the law, under the law. Think about what worship is like now. There's no central place where only, this is the only place to worship. We can worship wherever. There's no special time when we worship. You and I can worship whenever we want, wherever we want. And just like in heaven, right now, our praises have to do primarily with what we bring as a sacrifice and what we say with our lips. And that's exactly what happens in heaven. Folks, this is a rehearsal. We are practicing for that day. Do you remember, remember when your mom or dad used to talk to you about like crossing your eyes? They would say, don't do that or your face will freeze like that. Yeah. If this is a practice for heaven, what if one Sunday we all just froze and God said, there, that's going to be your worship for me in, in, in eternity. I don't want to be stuck like this. What do you mean? My soul froze like this. No. So next time you're at worship, you may want to turn to the person next to you and say, careful, your soul might freeze like that. <laughs> worship in the here and now has its own challenges. Let's be honest. You see, um, we kind of have to function, especially worship leaders, kind of like a tour guide. Uh, one man that spoke at the conference, he had a great uh, idea. He, he went to Israel, came back with thousands of pictures. And every picture he took, he took because their guide, who was wonderful, said, this is this, this is that, this is important. You want to get this. So all of his pictures were meaningful. It wasn't until he got home that he realized that the tour guide himself wasn't in a single picture even though he had played such an important role pointing out all these important pieces. You see, that's as it should be. The tour guide's job isn't to be in the picture. The tour guide's job is to direct others' attention to what is worthy. And that is true of me or of Ben or of anyone on this team or of each of us because you lead the people who are near you when we worship. The truth is, we're just getting a peek. We don't know. We, it's hard to even imagine what real worship's going to be like one day. We don't come ready to worship. We really need help. So we pour in. Think about a Sunday morning. Think about this morning. We pour in from our cars. You spilt your coffee in your car, and it, now it's starting to really smell bad. Or, or the kids are acting up, and, and, and the day's been whatever. And we pour in, and the first thing we have to say is, wait, 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 wait. Would you like to take a peek? Oh, that's right. This isn't the main thing. That's right. Uh, 
And, and so as we plan services, we start by trying to look for something that says, would you like to take a peek? Are you ready? Well, then come on and get off the bus. If this was a tour, you guys want to get off the bus? I want to show you something. Come on. If you've been on those tours, you know that after like the fourth day, you're like, I'm not getting off the bus. <laughs> yeah. Hey, will you take a few pictures? Can you just send them to me? Yeah. I'm just, I'm, just, I'm tired. So, you know. And the tour guys, no, no, no. You don't want to miss this. You're going to go all the way back home. Come, come off the bus. That's how we start out some mornings. Come on. Wait, come off the bus. <sighs> okay. Some of you missed that part because you're still out there getting coffee. <laughs> Come on, here we go. Now, as soon as you get off the bus, guess what we find out? Half of everybody on the bus is wounded. See, we were living in a rough world. <sighs> I, I just, I, and, and so sometimes we sing songs about my need, my brokenness, and how he touches, and how he accepts, and how he heals. It's important to treat the wounded before we do anything else. And sometimes, some Sundays, you're going to spot that, even a song in the midst. And it's talking about what I need, and you're going to cry, and you're going to say, that's how I feel. That's part of worship. Ah, but as the, as the wounds are healed, and as we start pointing people to the main event, it's kind of like going to a mountaintop. I love mountaintops. But you know what's really cool about mountain, mountaintops? When you get to the top of a mountain, the view is the best from up there because there's nothing else equally as high. We're going to God, who is worthy of all praise and glory. And if we can get to that top spot, what he wants us to see is, you have no peer. You are the Mount Everest of existence. And so there is this process. By the way, when you're outside, when you're on a mountaintop, it affects you. It resizes us. We just heard from friends that they're looking at the Sequoia National Park. They're, they're out near where we love to go. When you're standing next to a tree that's about as big around as this room, You feel really tiny. Worship, if you stick with it through this process, get off the bus, treat the wounded. Now would you go with us and start to look here and we direct our attention. Then something happens. As he gets bigger, we get smaller and smaller and smaller. <coughs> Here's a newsflash for those who might be like I used to be with your hands stuck in your pocket. Maybe some people are free to raise their hands to God in worship because they have been resized to the size of a child. And it's just natural for a child to reach up to their father. I need you. And so this process of worship should resize us, should change the way we see life. The truth is, though, if we're honest, we need practice at this. There isn't much in our lives that help us get ready for this. Psalm 95. It would help if I press buttons. Let me, let me read to you Psalm 95 just a little bit. Just listen to the psalmist's words. 
Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Hang on a second. If you're here to worship, I would like you to sing or shout. Go ahead, I'll wait. Oh, wait, it's kind of hard, isn't it? Ah, wait, shout, what? You see, we don't even know what we're supposed to do. Come, let us Come, let us come before him with thanksgiving. Let us extol him with music and song. Go ahead. I'm going to give you a minute to extol. Go ahead. Yeah, 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 God, yeah. See, we have to fight. And even as somebody does it, you're saying, well, he does that. I'm not going to. (laughs) Wait a minute. The Bible commanded us to extol his name. The truth is, we don't know what it means. We need help. In his hands are the depths of the ocean. The mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, and he made it. His hands formed the dry land. I don't know what to do, but this next part you know. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. For we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Isn't it interesting that when we get to psalms that we have sung, we kind of sort of know what to do which is exactly what a worship service is supposed to do. No one is expected to go home and extol in your backyard. Oh, from my heart, yes, but not the same as this. In fact, that's what the psalmists are saying. They're saying when God's people gather, the fruit of their lips together is something that is unique. And if you've ever tried to worship by yourself in your backyard, you know it's true. You're out there thinking, man, I wish Ben was here. What's that song? How's that go? Ah, A few weeks ago, I got a couple of days to go walk in the woods. And it was one song. One song that I could not get out of my head. And I was whistling it, humming it, the entire time out. Every time I looked at a mountaintop and this one song just kept coming back. I can't remember what I said in the last sermon. But I could remember that song. Folks, Do you realize how important this is to God? Do you realize that what we do matters to him? Colossians 3 says this. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Your heart may be filled with gratitude. Perhaps you'll find a posture that demonstrates that for your neighbor because you lead them as you worship. I would like to read the next little bit in the book of Revelation. John's going to take us back to that scene, if you don't mind. We've got a few minutes over. But I'm wondering if you're willing to close your eyes and try with your holy imagination to imagine what it is that John is seeing right now. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides. And it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seal and open the scroll? 
But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll. They couldn't even look inside it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and to look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. See, the son, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw the lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out from all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding a golden bowls of incense and there they were the prayers of God's people and they sang a new song. saying, worthy, you are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God people from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. You have made them a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they circled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice kept saying, say it with me, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them kept saying to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening. Intro music by bensound.com. Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org.